Today on In Spirit and Truth with Pastor J.D. Farag. Because Jesus Christ, on that cross, yet future, would take upon himself the curse of man's sin, there's no longer any curse on God's people. This was a foreshadow, a type of the fulfillment of the finished work on the cross by Jesus the Christ. We just saw this in Galatians chapter 3. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth, the radio ministry of Pastor J.D. Farag of Calvary Chapel, Kaneohe. Pastor J.D. is currently teaching through the book of Nehemiah. God is the only one who can take any curse against his people and turn it into a blessing. We'll hear from Pastor J.D. that God in his careful planning had the Israelite camp set up in the shape of a cross, foreshadowing the cross of Jesus. The curse of sin and death for us was reversed when Jesus died on the cross, offering us a blessing instead. Now be sure to stay with us after today's message to hear how you can get your own copy of today's broadcast. Subscribe to the In Spirit and Truth podcast or download the In Spirit and Truth iPhone or Android mobile app. Now here's Pastor J.D. in the book of Nehemiah chapter 13 with today's edition of In Spirit and Truth. All right, let's jump in. Verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. And here's why, verse 2. Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God, and I love this, turned the curse into a blessing. How many of you know that only God, as only He can, can take that which is meant for a curse or evil and turn it into a blessing and bring good from it? And that's what He did. So it was, verse 3, when they had heard the law, that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. This is what I call not only reading, but heeding the Word of God. They read in, and think about this, this is probably, very likely, the first time in the newly rebuilt temple that they had actually read from God's Word about this account. Now I want to come back to that because it's one of the most fascinating accounts in all of Scripture, but it appears that there was a gap of time between the previous chapter in chapter 12 and chapter 13 because we're told that it was on that day. And we're going to see as we get further into the chapter that Nehemiah had since returned and now has come back. It is believed that it's probably been several years and it's that proverbial when the cat's gone, the mice will play. It's not long after Nehemiah goes back to King Artaxerxes that the Israelites have done the very thing that they vowed to God, made a covenant, and committed to God that they would not do. And apparently, as we're about to see, this is exactly what they did. And for those of you who read ahead to stay ahead, they did in fact allow 
this Ammonite access into the temple of God. And to their credit, they did remove the mixed multitudes, but Nehemiah is the one that had to do it, as again we're about to see. So it's important to understand that when we're told they read from the book of Moses, this is the first five books, also known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the specific passage in God's word that they read was actually Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5. I want to actually read that. It's going to be germane to our understanding of what we're going to see here. It says in verse 3, Deuteronomy 25, An Ammonite, this is very specific, or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Here's why. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. And the reason he turned that curse into a blessing, we're told, is because the Lord your God loves you. I I need to hear that. Uh, If you're anything like me, and I suspect that you are, I need to be reminded that God loves me so much so that no weapon, no curse, No slander, no thing against me will prevail. That will be turned into a blessing, as only God can. Because God loves me, and God loves you. And Isaiah says of the Israelites that no weapon forged against God's people will prosper. No curse that is brought against you will be allowed to prosper. God, in fact, will take that curse as only he can. (laughs) We don't know how. We don't know the way. We just know that God can take that curse and turn it into a blessing. I think about what, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. This is so fascinating. If you don't mind, I just want to talk a little bit about this and mention what this account is in the book of Numbers, because it starts actually in Numbers chapter 2. This was, I believe, one of the most fascinating books. And sadly, when uh, someone hears about the book of Numbers, they think, boring. What's the book of Numbers about? Oh, it's a book about Numbers. It's the Numbers of the... Israelites, but we have very specific numbers of the Israelites recorded for us in Numbers chapter 2. And what I'm hoping you'll do is just permit me to share with you the profound significance of the numbers of the camps 
of the Israelites because in so doing, we're going to see why it is that no curse could come upon God's people. Romans 8 verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation, no curse for those that are in Christ Jesus. There's a reason why this Balaam, though paid a lot of money by Balak, could not pronounce a curse on God's people. Now, in order to understand this, we have to go back to Numbers chapter 2. I'll go through this as quickly as I can without boring you uh, to death. But in Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we're given very specifically the numbers of the camp of the Israelites, 12 tribes divided into four groups, to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. And at the head was the tribe to the east of Judah. And we're told that the numbers of them totaled 186,400. Then you have to the west in Numbers chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Ephraim, the total, 108,100. Now, to the south, the tribe of Reuben at the head, and that total was 151,450. And then Dan to the north, 157,600. Now, the tribe of Levi, of course, as the priestly tribe, was at the center of the camp where the tabernacle was. Now, why is that important? Because it also coincides with the heavenly scene that we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. I want to read verses 6 and 7. In the center, around the throne, were four, four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. I like to actually call them creations. Creatures kind of has a, a different connotation. Let's call them creations. The first living creation was like a lion, very important. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Now, consider the comparisons between the scene that we have with the Israelites in the book of Numbers and the scene that we also have here in Revelation chapter 4. In Numbers, you have the tabernacle at the center, and in Revelation, you have the throne at the center. In Numbers, you have four groups of three tribes from front to back. In Revelation, you have four living creation creations with eyes in front and back. In Numbers, the first is led by Judah, whose standard was a lion. In Revelation, the first creature was like a lion. In Numbers, the tribe of Ephraim had a standard with an ox. In Revelation, the second creature was like an ox. In Numbers, the tribe of Reuben had a standard with a man, and in Revelation, the third creation had a face like a man. And then in Numbers, the fourth group is led by Dan, whose standard was an eagle, and in Revelation, the fourth creation was 
like a flying eagle. Now this is where it starts to get really interesting. So the tribes at the head of the four camps with their standards were Judah, Ephraim, Reuben, and Dan. And the camp was to be in the four directions, to the east, to the west, to the north, and to the south. And the face on the four standards, like the four creatures, was that of a lion, an ox, the face of a man, and an eagle. And this ties in ever so beautifully with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's how I get there. The four Gospels present Jesus, the Savior, in four ways. Matthew presents him to the Jew as the Messiah from the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you have the lion in the standard and then the lion as the creation. And Mark and also focuses in Matthew on what Jesus said. Mark presents Jesus to the Romans as the servant like an ox and focuses on what he did. Luke presents Jesus to the Greeks as the son of man, like the face of a man, and focuses on how he appeared. Now this is where it gets even more interesting. So keep in mind now, you've got the tabernacle at the center, you've got a specific number of Israelites camped to the east and to the west, And then you have a specific number of Israelites camped from the north, but uh, you also have a different number to the south in the shape of a cross. Now, this is why in Numbers 22, when Balak takes uh, Balaam to a higher vantage point, this was the belief in that day that you needed to be able to see all of them and have this, you know, territory in order to pronounce this curse. And apparently this Balaam had this ability to either bless or curse. And you know the account in Numbers 22, every time he opened his mouth to try to pronounce a curse upon the Israelites, he couldn't instead a blessing, not just a blessing, A glorious blessing came forth from his mouth, much to the consternation of Balak, who was getting very perturbed at Balaam because he's paying him all this money to pronounce this curse upon the Israelites. So he goes finally to this high mountain peak where he has full view. Because Jesus Christ, on that cross yet future, would take upon himself the curse of man's sin. There's no longer any curse on God's people. This was a foreshadow, a type of the fulfillment of the finished work on the cross by Jesus the Christ. We just saw this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. And by the way, for those of you who were with us uh, a few weeks ago, we actually revisited 
Another very fascinating account about when Moses took that bronze serpent and put it on a pole. That pole was in the shape of a cross. And all the Israelites had to do to be healed, to be saved, was to look upon that cross. And by the way, Jesus references that placing by Moses of the bronze serpent on the pole in the shape of a cross in John's Gospel, chapter 3. You know, the most famous verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Well, Jesus also refers to the bronze serpent, which was, again, a foreshadow of the finished work on the cross. He took the sin of all mankind. And sin, of course, is the type of the serpent. And I want to go back all into that, but uh, very fascinating. And so... <laughs> Here's the Israelites now reading this account, and they learn of this, and this is why the Ammonites cannot ever be in the temple of God, in the assembly of God. There's one more thing I want to point out before we move on, and it has to do with how ultimately Balaam was able to get the uh, Israelites to be cursed. It could not come by him pronouncing the curse upon them. Instead, they brought the curse upon themselves. And we know this because of Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, in his letter to the church of Pergamos, Jesus had John write this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. What? Oh, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. That's how he did it. He got the Moabite and the Ammonite women to seduce the Israelite men and get them to start sacrificing to these false gods. And this is what brought the curse upon them. It was not outward. It could not be outward. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The curse cannot come upon those in Christ. But, listen, we can bring the curse upon ourselves. And this is exactly what had happened. And apparently this was prevalent in the church of Pergamos. By the way, I spent a lot of years now since I taught through the book of Revelation, one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. The only book in the Bible, by the way, in all of the 66 books, the book of Revelation is the only book that promises a blessing to those who read it, hear it, and take it to heart. The only book in the Bible that promises a blessing. Well, when we went through the seven churches, this is many, many years ago, when we got to chapters 2 and 3, we saw how that the name is the nature. And this is really true with this word, this name, Pergamos. Some of your translations render it Pergamum. It's the combination of two English words, perverted and gami, managami, perverted marriage perverted marriage. And that's what the name means. 
The name is the nature. And we certainly saw that with Laodicea, the laity decide. It's two words, laity and diocese, the laity rule. That's the seventh church that Jesus is not even inside anymore. He's standing at the door knocking to get back in. Now, you're probably wondering why I went into all of that. Well, as we're about to see, this is exactly what they did. They let the Ammonites in, and you're going to be reintroduced to this guy that you might remember from earlier on in Nehemiah verse 4. Now, before this, and this is what I love about this, they'd already done this, and then they read in God's Word where they're not supposed to do this. And so it says, now before this, verse 4, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Remember him? Oh, it gets worse. (laughs) This is the priest, too. He had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. In other words, there was was no tithes of grain in that storehouse, in that room. There was none of that. And so instead of having that in there, they have prepared this large room, basically a condo, within the assembly of God, the temple of God. And we're told, verse 6, but during all this, this is Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem. In other words, (laughs) let's be clear, if I was there, this would have never happened. That's what he's basically saying. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. (laughs) That's where I come from. They call that an eviction. Then I, verse 9, commanded them to cleanse the rooms and brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I don't know if it's possible to overstate the importance of what Nehemiah does here. Thanks for tuning in to Pastor J.D.'s teaching in the book of Nehemiah today. Here at In Spirit and Truth, we strive to bring God's Word to you in a way that blesses your life, but also challenges you to make a difference in this world. Nehemiah was a man who made a great impact, even though he wasn't serving as a priest or spiritual guide of any kind. God still used him and still uses ordinary people today. If you'd like to listen again to today's message, you'll find it at InSpiritAndTruthRadio.com. Just click on Listen. Having access to messages from God's Word adds some great encouragement to the pauses in your day and helps to keep you focused on Him. 
We'd also like to tell you more about the Mideast Prophecy Update, where Pastor J.D. discusses current events and their prophetic importance each Friday and Saturday. Here to tell you more about this is Pastor J.D. Thanks, Josh. Followers of Jesus Christ have this anticipating of his soon return at the rapture of the church, especially with everything that's happening in the world today. I'm of the belief that we are seeing key Bible prophecies beginning to come to pass in real time. And it's for this reason that we do these weekly prophecy updates as we look up and lift up our heads, knowing our redemption draws ever so near. This is what Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, verse 28. Our hope here at In Spirit and Truth is that believers will be ready and non-believers will get ready by coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ while there's still time. Thanks, Pastor J.D. That's all we have for today, but join us again right here on In Spirit and Truth. Dude.